personally profiting from it and also using it to keep a repressive ruling regime in power. The country's leader, José Eduardo dos Santos, has been president since 1979. And in 2013, Forbes magazine identified his daughter, Isabel, as Africa's first female billionaire. When the International Monetary Fund, IMF, Examined Angola's national accounts in 2011, Burgess writes, it found that between 2007 and 2010, $32 billion had gone missing, a sum greater than the gross domestic product of each of 43 African countries and equivalent to one in every four dollars that the Angolan economy generates annually. Meanwhile, according to Burgess, even though the country is at peace, In 2013, the Angolan government spent 18% of its budget on the Futungo-dominated military and police forces that prop up Dos Santos' rule, almost 40% more than it spends on health and education combined. Those who tend to blame Africa's woes on elite thievery seize on such examples with relish. But Burgess tells a much fuller story. Angola's leaders may seem more clever and perhaps possess more agency than other African regimes, and indeed other African states seem to be eagerly adopting the Angolan model. But the regime relies on the complicity of a number of actors in the international system, and the willful ignorance of many others to facilitate the dispossession of the Angolan people. Western governments, which remain largely mute about governance in Angola, major banks, big oil companies, weapons dealers, and even the IMF. They provide the political cover, the capital, and the technology necessary to extract oil from the country's rich offshore wells and have facilitated the concealment and overseas investment of enormous sums of money on behalf of a small cabal of Angolans and their foreign enablers. Because Angola's primary resource, oil, is deemed so important to the global economy, and because its production is so lucrative for others, Angola is rarely pressed to account for how it uses its profits, much less over questions of democracy or human rights. Burgess shows how even the IMF, after uncovering the $32 billion theft, docilely reverted to its role as a facilitator of the regime's dubious economic programs. For those who insist that foreign aid to Africa compensates for the role that rich countries, big businesses, and international organizations play in plundering the continent's resource wealth, Burgess has a ready rejoinder. In 2010, he writes, fuel and mineral exports from Africa were worth $333 billion, more than seven times the value of the aid that went in the opposite direction. And African countries generally receive only a small fraction of the value that their extractive industries produce, at least relative to the sums that states in other parts of the world earn from their resources. As Burgess reveals, that is because multilateral financial institutions, led by the World Bank and its International Finance Corporation, IFC, often put intense pressure on African countries to accept tiny royalties on the sales of their natural resources, warning them that otherwise they will be labeled as resource nationalists and shunned by foreign investors.
The result, Burgess writes, is like an inverted auction, in which poor countries compete to sell the family silver at the lowest price. Meanwhile, oil, gas, and mining giants employ crafty tax avoidance strategies, severely understating the value of their assets in African countries and assigning the bulk of their income to subsidiaries in tax havens such as Bermuda, the Cayman Islands, and the Marshall Islands. Some Western governments tolerate and even defend such arrangements, which increase the profits of Western companies and major multinational firms. But these tax dodges further shrink the proceeds that African states earn from their resources. According to Burgess, in Zambia, one of the world's top copper producers, major mining companies pay lower tax rates than the country's poor miners themselves. Partly as a result, he reports, in 2011...